Welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? Hi, it's Susan. Thank you for soaking up our first few episodes of Sentient Planet. Your feedback has been really uplifting, and it's helping to energize us as we create the content for Season 2. You guys sure have a lot of love for the Southern Resident Orca, who we've been focused on for the past few weeks. Please, keep it coming, and get involved, however you can, in the fight to breach the dams, save the salmon, and feed these wonderful relatives in the Salish Sea. Before we start shifting to other wonderful species, we promised you a bonus episode with Ken Balcom, the Southern Resident's podfather. It's one of the first interviews I did for Sentient Planet, over Zoom, at the height of the pandemic. Anyway, I hope you enjoy him. Hi Ken, welcome to Sentient Planet and thanks so much for joining us today. So tell me all about the Big Salmon Ranch. Well, I've been coming up the Elwha River Valley here since 1969, wanting to hike up and over the mountains. Uh, I was stationed in the Navy out at Pacific Beach, Washington. And there is a trail that goes from here to there. Uh, it would take about a week to hike it. But uh, anyway, it's fabulous country. And it was this fabulous salmon river that ran through it called the Elwha. But unfortunately, about 100 years ago, it was dammed up for producing electricity for uh, Port Angeles and the logging companies around here. And the salmon were not allowed to go into the upper waters for 100 years. Right. And the National Park Service uh, a few years ago uh, uh, initiated a uh, environmental impact statement showing that removal of the two dams that were on this river would allow these salmon to recover. And so that was the story of the Elwha. My story was that uh, I've been studying the killer whales since 1976, including the Southern residents that are dependent upon salmon for their diet, and uh, came to the conclusion uh, actually pretty early on that we're overfishing and preventing the salmon from being in the abundance required to support the whales. And this has just been going on throughout our entire study of 45 years. But a few years ago, I got real active in, uh, okay, let's do something. You know, let's take out some dams. I knew the Elwha was coming out. That was great. But the big ones were the Snake River dams, the four dams on the Snake River that prevent recovery to a population of probably a million Chinook salmon that would be available to the whales and enough to support their survival. So how's that fight going to have those dams removed? Yeah, very good question. Uh, I quickly learned that facts and truth and all that stuff that is the basis of science does not carry a lot of weight necessarily in the world of politics and uh, business economy. So we just ran headfirst into uh, dam politics. They uh, basically, we have a Bonneville Power Authority that uh, distributes and markets the power generated from the dams on the Columbia River and other systems, but including the snake, which uh, 
those dams were built in the 1960s. And I mean, I, I had, I was going to college then I'd heard about them, I guess, but uh, it was all in the name of progress that were damming rivers and creating deep sea ports way up river and uh, producing electricity for expansion. It was all a good story. But unfortunately, it was a very bad story for the salmon and the native fishes in the river system. Basically, we've, we've screwed it up pretty bad. They're going extinct. And uh, even though we have an uh, Endangered Species Act and uh, all these proclamations by government, it turns out that uh, the politics is what drives the situation, not truth, not environmental sanity. You know, it just... I just got sick and tired of going to these meetings when it was pretty obvious that it's all stacked to maintain the status quo, keep the money flowing in the directions that it has been, even though it's wasting not only money, but an ecosystem, but just keep going that way. And so that's what motivated you to go and do something independently on the OWA there? Exactly. I figured that uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing something that I know needs to be done. It's within the legal authority to purchase land, to own, basically now we own 700 feet of the river next to the Olympic National Park and the tribes and the federal government own a lot of the river downstream of us. Uh, we just wanna make sure that uh, there is no development and uh, utilization of this area that diminish the return of the salmon. So that property that you've bought there is protecting some of the spawning areas for the Chinook salmon, is that correct? Yes. We only have 700 feet of river system, but it's a place in the midstream, Elwha, where the majority of the Chinook salmon are returning to spawn. They're nests that they lay their eggs in. They lay about 5,000 eggs. And uh, then, of course, the salmon die, the adults. And they nutrify the, uh, the ecosystem. You know, everything depends on the salmon. You know, they are returning now. And we want to be part of that good story. And besides that, you know, we're just, the, the whales bought this. It's an interest of the whales to restore salmon runs throughout the Pacific Northwest and all the way down to California. Have you calculated how much salmon you're protecting every year by establishing that big salmon farm and, and what that's going to mean for the food supply for the southern residents? Well, the Endangered Species Act required an environmental impact statement, and the Park Service estimated that with the removal of the dams, the Chinook salmon population would return to upwards of 31,000 adult fish, and that would provide a tidy diet for the southern resident killer whales as these fish migrated through the Strait of Juan de Fuca to this river system. A lot of them would be caught by fishermen and predators. That's fine. But as long as you have that number of adult fish returning to spawn, you would have returning little salmon in the millions. And this is uh, what we need to recover not only the salmon, but the uh, 
eagles and the bears and the trees and the orcas and uh, the healthy habitats that can exist here, do exist here, except we've blocked them. We want to be part of this good story. Rather than beat our heads against the bureaucrats like the fish used to beat their heads against the dams, we were going to share the good news. That sounds fantastic. How are the southern resident pods faring these days in your observations? How are they doing in terms of starvation? And In the winter months, the salmon are not as abundant as when they're returning in the spring and summer and fall to their spawning rivers. But they're still out there, the feeder salmon, the six-pounder, seven, eight-pound fish. And uh, out in the deep Pacific, they're even bigger fish. But they're spread out. So the whales have to spread out. And like yesterday, five southern residents came down from Johnstone Strait from a previous few days and passed by San Juan Island looking for salmon. Last week, we had J-Pod and parts of K-Pod that went all the way into Puget Sound and then up in Georgia Strait and then out to Strait Juan de Fuca. They're all out searching, but the total population has been declining. We have 74 individuals right now that optimistically that we know of. Uh, we haven't seen them all in the past month, but we've seen a number of them. So we know that uh, we don't have any mass mortality. We also don't have any births since the J-Pod had two babies last year. That's the key is uh, in order to have a surviving population, we have to have successful reproduction. And that's what's been really sad to see is that a very high percentage of the pregnancies fail. The neonates, the newborns uh, have a high mortality rate. And then most alarming to me is that most of these babies are now males that survive. And we can count 74 whales, but if most of them are males, you don't have a population that has viability. You've got to have females to have the offspring. That's how they're faring that you know of. How many encounters do you guys typically have with these animals every year? Do you see them every week, every day? Oh, we don't see them every day. Uh, and when the salmon are migrating to their rivers to spawn, typically May to October, we may have bi-weekly encounters with the Southern residents. In, in the first year of our study, 1976, we had 50 encounters. And most of these were with Southern residents. Transients or the meat-eating, the seal-eating whales weren't very common in those years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the recent three years, we've had about 100 encounters per year. But most of these encounters are now with the meat-eating big transient whales. And I think this is just Mother Nature's way of, you know, Mother Nature knows the system is skewed here. It's uh, attempting to balance by having the natural predators of salmon uh, that compete with the southern residents reduce their population. So basically the transients are doing real well. They're running around here eating seals and sea lions and keeping that population in check as much as they can. And this is what really is, you know, a curiosity where, I mean, we know from just basic biology that you have booms and busts in animal populations. And typically it's a predator prey sort of thing where 
when you have lots of prey, lots of food, you have the predator population grow. And then it often outruns the prey population reproductive dynamics. And you have a reduction in prey and a necessary reduction in the predator population. So that this is exactly what the southern resident killer whales are doing, except that they're not the ones removing the salmon. It's the people that are fishing, mm -hmm. polluting, and damming the habitats required for the salmon to thrive. So in a way, we're just uh, letting the whales speak for themselves to produce rivers that provide food for them. I mean, the Elwha is a success story, and I've heard it portrayed as, oh, well, that wasn't so good. That's not, you know, the salmon didn't return after all, you know, it's going to take 30 years. So we can't expect that it's going to be right now, but the whales are in it for the long run. So are we, you know, we have a nonprofit organization that I firmly believe will hold this land and river in perpetuity. It's in adjacent to the national park. I know that area. It is just spectacular. I got to go up to the Elwha for the first time since the dams had been removed, actually, just this past October. And um, it's just, it's fantastic up there. It makes me feel very hopeful for the future, in fact. Yeah. I mean, here we're uh, nature at its best, you know, and, and basically our, the dams were the primary obstructions to the return to a natural ecosystem. And the ecosystem doesn't include just the salmon the salmon carcasses feed the feed the trees for one thing you know provide nitrogen for the the trees they feed the bears feed the eagles they're water oozles that are returning to the river we've got all kinds of wildlife surrounding this system and then right here in the front yard we've got an elk population that wanders through every once in a while and uh i just as a comparison i would photo identifying the elk and there are about 85 individuals out there and it's maintained at about that level nature does some of the maintenance and then there's removals by hunting but anyway it's an interesting comparison it's a different you know they're not a predator as such of uh, uh, other animals they're eating the vegetation but they're important in this whole ecosystem and they're thriving. Let me ask you, um, how long have orca roamed the earth? Who are they? What's their geographical territory? Can you give our listeners a sense of who these animals are? Well, the southern resident killer whales were called such because they're the population of whales that was frequenting the southern area of British Columbia. Dr. Mike Big started his study in the early 70s and he photo identified everybody, north and south, and uh, had a lot of criticism in the early years when people didn't believe you could tell them apart. Well, that's now very well accepted that we do know every individual and, and every transient individual also. And the southern residents not only are May to September around the uh, southern end of Vancouver Island and the San Juan archipelago and down into Puget Sound. But uh, at other times of the year and between visits to the inshore waters, they're out on the coast of Washington, British Columbia, down to Oregon. They'll go as far as the 
Sacramento River salmon uh, off the Bay Area of Central California. And they'll go as far north as uh, uh, Southeast Alaska. So, uh, you know, they're, they're following salmon. Wherever it goes. They travel 75 miles a day. Even when they find lots of salmon, they don't just stay and eat them all. They move on and then they come back. If they didn't find any 40 miles away, they come back. Just constantly hunting. Yeah, they're basically, uh, we had a, one of our studies was behavioral, uh, ethogram. We'd look at the amount of time spent traveling, the amount of time spent feeding, the amount of time spent resting, uh, and the amount of time spent, what we call it, playing, jumping out of the water and splashing and chasing each other around. I mean, they're very vivacious animals. They had uh, sort of a pattern where they would travel for is find some fish and go into feeding mode. And after the feeding mode, go into a rest, take a little nap after lunch. And then when they'd come out of their resting pattern, go into these real exciting social interaction groups, like a big party picnic. They had this behavioral pattern that we saw, and that's been interrupted now too, where there isn't much time for them to rest. They have to keep traveling and foraging. That's their you know, they used to have to do that in the winter, but now they have to do that all year. So the lack of food is forcing them to be hunting much more frequently and continuously than they used to have to do that. More continuously. And, you know, what we've had go on in the past 50 years also is uh, uh, an increase in the, uh, in order to keep some salmon going for commercial fishing and recreational fishing, the state has uh, introduced hatcheries. And unfortunately, the hatchery fish are not as fit. They're, they don't get as big. They're uh, not sustainable in the long run. Fewer than uh, 1% of them have a survival to adult stage from a smolt stage, uh, the stage when they first enter the saltwater environment, fewer than 1% return. And uh, it's going to take at least 2% of the smolt survival to even replace themselves. So they're going downhill too. So basically what we see is that natural ecosystems have to be restored and encouraged to be the main focus of what the whales need. Going back to some of the things you were saying earlier about how you've observed uh, these animals in different stages of activity, can you describe for me the, the orca or killer whale culture, how they interact with each other and just educate us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, a lot of what was believed about orcas, like in the 50s, it was believed that, uh, you know, they were dangerous to humans, you know, that you they're big, scary predator animals like great white sharks. The captive industry and display of individuals showed that not to be true. And uh, actually even just going out and following them around a little bit and studying them, find that they have no malice toward humans at all. Their food supply is fish. And they're happy to share those fish with the indigenous populations that were here. That was part of the cue that 
well, if the whales are around, there must be some fish. So let's go fishing. And uh, there was no animosity between the humans and the, and the whales. In fact, the whales were icons and totems to the wildlife bounty that was in, the, in this area. Anyway, uh, socially, what we found is uh, basically they organize into matrilineal mother offspring groups. Uh, and you'll have related like sisters uh, will travel together. And even though they may be grandmothers, all their offspring will travel to groups. So these are subpods. And then uh, they'll travel with uh, cousins as well, related kinship social organization. And that'll form a pod. And in the early days, pods were very cohesive when, when we'd see J-pod, we'd see all of J-pod. When we'd see K-pod, it was all a K-pod. An L-pod was some 45 individuals at the time of our beginning study, and uh, they sometimes broke into two pods. We called the L-8 and the L-10s, and they were based on, uh, uh, you know, we were sort of male-oriented because they have tall dorsal fins. They're easy to distinguish, so we, we didn't call them matrilines at the time. We'd call it according to the largest male in the group. Anyway, and then we find that uh, with genetic studies that have been done more recently by Noah and others, uh, that uh, the mating is not restricted to the pod, it's between pods in general. Uh, when you run out of opportunities, you'll have some mating within the pod, even within the matriline, which that's taboo in, in a sort of genetic way, but it, it will occur. But their social structure is they'll play with everybody. Mm. You know, they'll, they'll swim with everybody. You know, they all get along. You know, we'll, we'll have tooth marks, tooth scratches on each other that are all superficial, almost always. We've seen a couple that were pretty serious and probably mistaken. But, uh, you know, they don't have hands. So in order to uh, caress each other and play with each other kind of, eagerly they bite but don't bite hard but it'll leave scratches and do, do certain individuals form particularly strong bonds with other individuals i mean we've obviously seen um, that that is true of mothers and their calves for instance right what mothers and offspring are extremely strong bond the young whales stay with mom at least through their juvenile stages through 10, 11, 12 years of age, and uh, quite often throughout life. The, even the boy, the sons, will stay with the mom through his entire life. Like we had in our, our beginning study, we had J1 and J2 that stayed together all the time. When you see one, you see the other. And in the old days, uh, you know, this was, oh, well, a uh, mated pair. Well, we found that it wasn't. It was J2 was the mom and J1 was the son. And he was with his mom until he died. Is it true they have uh, different pods, have different dialects? And what do we mean by that? All these whales uh, do make these chirping sounds. <laughs> like that. And uh, they uh, do have, each pod has uh sounds that are distinctive just for that group uh, and then they will also have sounds that they share with the other pods whatever they're saying 
can be universal throughout the population of Southern residents. But you can hear them on a hydrophone, for example, a microphone in the water and uh, tell which pot it is just by their dialect, sort of like listening to uh, you're from Boston or you're from the South or you're, it's, it's all the English language, but it's a different twang. Do you remember the first time you ever saw a Southern resident kill a whale in the wild? Uh, I do. That was uh, April 6, 1976. We had been just hired by the government beginning on April Fool's Day to go out and count all the killer whales in Puget Sound. And oh, by the way, if you want to see if you can identify them uh, individually like Mike Big, because he was considered maybe not reliable or maybe even a little bit crazy on saying that you can tell them all apart. Uh-huh. Anyway, April 6, right here off of Port Angeles. Actually, it was a little bit east of here. We first encountered them off Dungeness Spit, and uh, they were moving west, and it was K and L pod uh, spread out, heading toward the Pacific Ocean. We followed them out to uh, past Freshwater Bay and photographed every individual. And, uh, you know, at the time, I was just uh, logging. There's a male two miles south of us. Looks like there's some other whales there. But we could see the males. They were very distinctive with the big fin. Uh, and we could see that they were very spread out. But as they went west, they gathered up after their foraging off of the Dungeness and uh, Port Angeles area. They gathered up off Freshwater Bay and went into that resting pattern. What was remarkable to me about the encounter was that we visually saw marks and scars on whales that Mike Big had described to us over the phone. We knew that they were whales that Mike said he already knew, which was very uh, gratifying that, oh yeah, we can tell them apart too. Yeah. What was amazing was the detailed accuracy. I developed the film that night and called Mike Big and I'd start uh, describing a whale we saw and he'd describe every scratch on it and everybody that that whale was with. So you guys working together were really, you were proving um, what he was trying to establish there or together you were doing that, that you really can recognize each one of these individually. So that that would have been a really exciting era, I can imagine. Yeah, that was the result of that first day's encounter with the whales was like, I went from a skeptic to a believer instantly. Well, we proved it to everybody. No, nobody doubts it anymore. And in fact, all the people that are living around Puget Sound and reporting to Orca Network and, you know, a lot of this science stuff now is done by the public. You know, it's amazing. What is that human fascination with the killer whale, do you think? Well, I think I was fascinated because so little was known about their natural biology, their natural history. Uh, so I saw it as an opportunity to learn something and publish something and share something and become uh, known for being a killer whale expert. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that quite honestly, I think that was my motivation as a young biologist was to somehow get recognition along with the knowledge of the whales. So it sounds like you had a, a fairly scientific kind of approach and even reaction the first time oh, yeah. you saw those but how do you feel about them now is is that still 
the relationship you feel with them or is it different now all these years later? Uh, it's their world. You know, I, I would actually like to shrink from being identified as their godfather or spokesman or whatever. I mean, they need that and I'll do that for a mission, but for my personal thing, the whales themselves, that population, if we can keep feeding them and keeping a healthy ecosystem, um, they'll be around here for another thousand years. I, I won't. And uh, I don't know who's going to be the populations of humans that come after us, but uh, we better be careful in maintaining a healthy environment for all these other animals that are around here, or it's not going to be good for us. So I, I see them as the indicators of a healthy environment. And I want to see that, uh, at least on my watch, that uh, they have a healthy environment. Fantastic. Um, so you've, you've observed these animals now, I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands of times. What's your sense of their sentience? Uh, how do you know from those observations that they have their own right to life and they have emotions and all of those things? Can you speak a little bit about that? I think one of the first uh, real impressions that I had was, you know, I mean, I had assumed that because they had gone through 10 years of captures and before that 10 years or 100 years of being shot at and damned, that they would have, a, you know, at least a strong avoidance, if not a malicious attitude toward us, because they're, they're as big as elephants. They're big animals. They could easily stomp our boat but they accepted us like within an hour by the time they gathered up in the resting group probably four hours into the encounter they were just hanging right around the edge of the boat and swimming along with us and looking up at us and chirping and you know like it was like we were accepted we weren't you know something to be avoided or something to be trashed and the the very next encounter we had with uh J-Pod coming back into Puget Sound, they within an hour were accepting us. And then the mothers would leave their babies just playing around our boat while they went off and foraged. So they, you know, they were super trusting. That's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I expected them to be, uh, you know, at the, at the very least kind of cautious of our presence, but they weren't, they weren't. It's almost as if they understood your intention. By the end of that first year, we were, uh, for all practical purposes, part of the pod. None of them uh, were shy of us at all. Whales do have, individuals have different levels of shyness or gregariousness. And, you know, and we've pointed that out over the years where we photographed you know, that. That animal is always peripheral, always as far as one from us. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Not as trusting. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows what its history was? A lot of them had their babies basically ripped from them. You know, the, the whole pod is netted and the babies were taken away and sold to marine parks around the world. Well, that was going to be one of my questions for you, if you were willing, just to, I, I don't know that people still remember what happened off Whidbey Island in 1970. Not, not, not generally, I don't think people know that. Would you be willing to retell that story? 
When I began this study in 1976, I was a, a biologist hoping to do professional publications and climb the ladder of success in, in marine biology. And uh, there you basically, you don't get very subjective. You're always objective. Uh, you know, you, you don't let your emotions rule what you think about what's going on. So it was always numbers and photographs and proof and, and things like that. Uh, Penn Cove in Whidbey Island was a place where twice the Southern resident population was trapped behind Whidbey Island. And in August, 1970, the entire population was there. Uh, most of them were wrapped up in a net that the captors had set and were busy taking out the babies. Uh, some whales that were not in the net wouldn't leave. They were creating commotion outside the net. At least four whales drowned by being entangled in the net. Uh, some of the little babies, uh, well, four of them, were uh, wrapped in chains and anchors put on them and hidden from the public so that they wouldn't create an uproar over, hey, this is really, you know, not only are you kidnapping little whales, you're killing some. So it was, in general, a PR fiasco that the captive people tried to hide from. And who were these people? Well, uh, one of them is deceased now. It's uh, Don Goldsberry. Ted Griffin and Don Goldsberry saw early on in the 60s that, hey, these, uh, these whales could be worth a lot of money. And actually, the state agreed that, uh, you know, for a $25 license fee, you can go out and get them. And, and this is a win-win thing. You know, we'll get rid of these damn predators that are eating our fish. And at the same time, uh, you can make some money. That's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, that was the human attitude. And, you know, by and large, the public was, you know, either indifferent or uh, if you liked whales and protested this, you were an activist, uh, environmentalist, you know, that somehow is a bad word to be an environmentalist. And uh, anyway, uh, there was this infamous capture at Penn Cove, August 1970. And one whale from that, I mean, there were 50, uh, during the capture era, 50 some whales were sold to marine parks around the world. 50 killer whales. 50 killer whales. Wow. On the order of 55, actually, but uh, it includes some of them that didn't make it through the transportation phase. And usually uh, they died within a year of reaching their uh, destination marine park. But far as the captors were concerned, uh, they'd provide a warranty that it would survive for so long. And if it didn't, well, they just go catch another one and sell it, give it to them. They were just a product. That was uh, the beginning of a question about, well, is this right? You know, are we supposed to be exploiting nature like this? I mean, we we had fisheries that caught all the fish. And as a matter of fact, the whales were managed under the fisheries departments. They were just sort of like big fish. Right, they weren't understood back then to yeah. be the incredibly intelligent cetaceans that they are. Right. Well, and they're still managed under NOAA uh, National Marine Fisheries. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, well, they're not really a fish. 
they're a mammal and they're not only a mammal, they're a very highly evolved mammal that's basically uh, the best thing in the ocean. Very intelligent, very adapted. The only thing that they have to worry about is people and they don't worry much about them. In general, they're pretty self-sufficient. They, you know, they obviously don't want to run into boats and people and have interactions, but they're not too worried about being looked at. That infamous capture in that cove, I remember reading something about just how brutal it was that there were helicopters involved and explosives. Is that all true? Oh, yes. Quite true. Yeah. Yeah. In order to get the whales to move into an area where they could encircle them with a net, they'd uh, chase them with speedboats and helicopters and drop explosives into the water. They will move away from dynamite being blasted in their vicinity. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Yeah, they're not, not going to just stick around and have bombs dropped on them or uh, boats run over them. But, uh, and then they would herd them into these bays that were relatively shallow where the nets would go to the bottom and uh, encircle them. And then gradually... Uh, decrease of the netted area until they had them in a pretty tight group and then they would lasso and net out the young ones and put them on the barge and take them to the airport. And take basically the babies away from, from their mothers. 12 to 16 feet long was the sort of allowed removal size. So who was putting the rule on... Um... Was it the feds that were deciding what was appropriate in terms of captures? Well, up until 1972, it was the state of Washington. And their fisheries people, they were part of this group that said that, uh, you know, this is a win-win. You know, we get rid of these damn whales and we uh, sell licenses at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then in 1972, the U.S. Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed and signed into law. And... Uh, the feds took over the management of marine mammals and uh, they raised the fee to $100 for a license to capture. Uh, but they had the same mentality, same attitude. Certainly sounds like it. Ken, of those 50 killer whales that were taken from their families and sent out to marine parks around the world, do you have any idea if any of those, well, we know Lolita is still around. Um, do you know how many survived to this day? Lolita's it. She's the one southern resident killer whale in captivity that remains alive from that whole era. And she was captured, uh, what, August 8th in 1970 in Penn Cove, Whidbey Island. Obviously, I think that uh, she should be returned to her family. That the, I've seen the family bonds are so strong. They're lifelong. And, uh, I mean, they'll do anything for their, they're not afraid of dying to protect their relative. Anyway, but 
this is uh, in the world of science. It's uh, you start leaning a little bit toward these activist things, even some environmental sort of campaigns like the Snake River, and uh, your peers they begin to avoid you. You don't get invited to do the talks, and you you know I mean it, it, there's a pressure. Circling back to the big salmon ranch, this is the whale's decision. This is what they would want is mm -hmm. an ecosystem restored so that uh, things can get back to sort of normal. I mean, I, I'm just, I look around at, uh, you know, our political situation nationally and regionally, and I see, uh, I'm, I mean, I can't agree with much of it, but I know that uh, at least in our nation and culture, property ownership is, that's fairly well respected. That's gold. <laughs> the whale's on the river now, this part of it. Right. And uh, that's the long and the short of it. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have anything to argue about that. And it's, it's not necessarily activist. It's just uh, the, what I believe. The, these, these whales want this. So some of the stuff that we've been talking about today is from, a, you know, it's, it's a legacy of a bygone mindset that humans have had towards nature and towards our animal kin. That, that seems to be changing. Um, I don't know if it's quick enough, but it does seem to be changing in the world. And it, it seems to me that as our awareness changes, that we have a different moral uh, duty, if you like, to the orca and other animals in the world. What, what do you think that duty is? Is it is it what you've been describing to provide them with as much as possible of the natural ecosystem that they need to survive in? I've always loved animals from a little kid. You know, I thought McDonald's farm was not far away from my grandmother and grandfather's house. And in fact, it was McDonald that owned a barn and had some pigs and chickens and stuff. And I mean, I was probably just three years old, four years old and fascinated by all these animals. And of course, these were animals that were being ultimately in farm situations used for human benefit. You know, you raise them and you eat them and you get milk from them and stuff like that. But uh, I think uh, I've developed a feeling for just to share the world with them you know just it, it just feels so good to have an animal that seems to be happy you know whether it's your pet or the elk that are out in the yard now they're doing their natural thing uh, or the salmon that have spawned in the river uh, or the creatures that feed upon all this Everybody's just doing their natural thing. And I just feel really honored to be part of their life and not interfere with it. And if possible, to help remove the obstacles that do interfere with their life. And so basic obstacle that I see for Southern resident killer whale survival is food. They need to eat. Yeah. And every day that goes by that we're stuck in damn politics yeah. is another day that they don't have adequate food. Yeah, why do we have to fight to do what's right here and, and restore an ecosystem that 
if it were returned to healthy function, would be a benefit to everybody and everything and all living. Overall, Ken, are you optimistic about the future for the Southern residents or pessimistic? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I've been pessimistic the past few years, but uh, because I was seeing that uh, we have decreasing population, it's it's nice to see that, uh, you know, after several years of no babies, we finally had two, but one of them is unknown sex and one of them is a male. So, you know, we can't really count them as optimism yet. You know, I'm, I haven't been very optimistic, but uh, I'm looking forward to this river system here on the Elwha as being something that shows everybody that you can restore these ecosystems. It's been done before in other places. Why not do it here? I mean, these Southern resident killer whales need these fish. They need these restored ecosystems to function for them and for us. So uh, let's get to it. Ken Balcom is the director of the Center for Whale Research at whaleresearch.com. Although his orca imitations are super fun, he really does speak for them. You can listen to true and sometimes live vocalizations of JK and L pods at orcasound.net. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original logo by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Red Giant by Stellar Drone. To learn more about the guest and organizations in today's episode, as well as actions you can take to create a more just and harmonious world, visit us and join our pod at sentientplanetpodcast.com. On socials at Sentient Planet Podcast and Patreon at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. Thanks for listening, and love to all beings, great and small.